of offending people who don't believe in Jesus. Oh, what do I think? Who cares? Let's tell them the truth. Don't give me, they're just living their truth. Let God be true and every man a liar. In other words, if it doesn't come from the book, it's not true. It is our last deep end of the season. Can you believe it? Uh, we got to talk about the deconstruction that continues in our culture because it's important to the political revolutionaries that they win your alliance to the state by eliminating anything that gets in the way. And we're going to look at how that's happening right now. Will Christians play along with this cultural revolution? Plus, we discuss the subtle erasure happening not just in media, sports, and government, but also through our governmental immigration policies. But there is great hope for Gen Z. The younger people are checking back into the Bible, and we got to discuss all that tonight on The Deep End on Tim Hatch Live. Welcome in. All of you who are so faithful to The Deep End Show, can you believe it? This is Season 6, Episode 43, and I am sad to report to you that this is the last episode for season six. We're going to be back with season seven the day after Labor Day. So mark your calendars now. But yeah, it has to end at some point. And tonight is that end. So uh, make sure, of course, that you are doing what we always ask you to do, which is click that like button and the subscribe button and the notification bell. Uh, that way you can get notified every time we go live. I know it's your favorite night of the week here on The Deep End on Tim Hatch Live. And I'm so glad that you joined me for this content. What makes a culture? You ever ask yourself that question? What makes a culture? Well, I found this graph online. This graph shows us some basic ideas that in order to have culture, you have to have things, part of that community, part of your group of people that feed each other. You have to have community, values, food, tools, language. But two things on this list that are very undervalued contributors to culture are knowledge and stories. And I highlight the word stories. You need shared stories. Some people even go as far as to say, we need shared myths to tie us together. And then you need traditions and rituals, um, religious practices, if you will, spiritual practices that bind a community together. You ever see how fractioned, how, how, how factioned and divided America is, how we are all kind of more tribal than we ever have been before? What is happening? The answer is, our culture has been erased. It's been destroyed. And the things that held us together have been demonized in many respects. And people don't know where to go. And I believe that this is all intentional by some nefarious actors behind the scenes to tie your first alliance to the state and make you complicit with the reorientation of what it means to be human. And that that sounds very heavy, but it happens very nonchalantly in almost every area of our culture. There's one answer to it, and we're going to get to it at the end of this at the end of this show. So hang in for that. But we've got to talk about how entertainment feeds into this, because the question that we're going to ask and answer is, you know, what happens to a nation when they erase their traditions and their cultures or their shared stories, their shared myths? One of those shared myths that we share as Americans, is the myth of Snow White. And we talked about this last week on The Deep End, but we need to talk about it again. 
See, in America, we're about to find out what happens when you erase those stories of your history. Uh, this brings us to Snow White, the new live-action film coming out in 2024. Disney has embraced the most interesting forms of advertising by hiring an actress to basically spit on the original story and diss her own male co-stars, if they happen to be male, as she parades along the red carpet promoting another movie. So we talked about this girl. This is Rachel Zegler, and she was uh, explaining uh, why this Snow White will be different than that old bad Snow White of yesteryear. And we shared one clip from this interview that was kind of bad about how she won't be saved by the prince, even though that is basically the story of Snow White. And uh, here she is now talking about how uh, that old story is just so old, and that's what makes it bad, because it turns out that the prince was a creeper. Watch. I mean, you know, the, the original cartoon came out in 1937, yeah. and very evidently so. <laughs> um, there is a big focus on her love story. Um, with a guy who literally stalks her. <laughs> yeah. Weird. Weird. Super weird. So we didn't do that this time. <laughs> so, no, so no prince or a different kind of prince? We have a different approach to what I'm sure a lot of people will assume is a love story just because like we cast a guy in the movie, right. Andrew Burnap, great dude. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's one of those things that I think everyone's going to have their assumptions about what it's actually going to be, but uh, it's really not about the love story at all, which is really, really wonderful. And whether or not she finds love along the way is anybody's guess until 2024 um all of andrew's scenes could get cut who knows it's hollywood baby it's hollywood baby yeah so evidently something that you may not have known was that the original snow white prince was a creeper <laughs> this is the modern mentality and here it is the old is bad the the theme of young love is oh that's so racist and bigoted and traditional we don't want that ironically this actress is dating her co-star from her performance in West Side Story, Steven Spielberg's uh, movie, West Side Story. So she And she's been dating him since 2019. So she wants young love in her own life, but I guess she's going to portray to millions of young girls that you don't need a boy. You don't need a guy. Uh, there's it's time for a new regime, a new regime where the individual is God. The individual is everything. And then, ironically, you have this uh, vast decline in people getting married, in people even dating. In fact, an interesting article from EV.com, this is an EV magazine article, says half of single men avoid interacting with women out of fear of being seen as creepy. Uh, another article that allows a website that allows people to ask basic questions of life is why is it that men don't want to approach women anymore? And gee, I wonder why. I mean, we have demonized the whole dating process. Now, if a man shows interest in a woman and wants to ask her out, he's considered weird, weird, weird and creepy and somebody who shouldn't be trusted and all that kind of dark, you know, underbelly of your personhood for being a man. But this is, again, the cultural revolution that we are experiencing. It's really not about the young love issue. It's really about how Snow White is a story that we've told ourselves for many, many years. And now, because it was made in 1937 and anything that happened before millennials was born is racist, now that story has to go. So you can't have Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs anymore. You have Snow White and the Seven Weirdos. I don't even know what those people are and what they represent cohesively, but maybe they kind of represent America, which is a weird conglomerate of strange-looking people that have no shared story whatsoever. But this is what is now in the mantra of the cultural revolutionaries. Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs have to go. And you say, well, it's just a stupid movie, Pastor. No, it's a, it's a cultural revolution. And we're going to talk to you a little bit about 
historical cultural revolutions that followed the same trajectory of our modern day and see if we don't see the same similarities happening right now. Moving on from entertainment, we can look at the sports world. Uh, remember the Cleveland Indians? Yeah, gone. Why? Political correctness, uh, cultural revolution. And then my my favorite name, one of my favorite names for a football team, and I'm a New England Patriot fan, was the Washington Redskins. I used to love this team. I was a big fan of them in the 90s when they were winning uh, with Joe Gibbs, those Super Bowls, amazing historical team. 87 years of being called the Washington Redskins. Then George Floyd died. And I guess they needed to change their name. So they became the Washington football team for a whole season. How insane is that? And then eventually became the Washington Commanders. Yes, a team that used to be named for brave Native Americans is now named for America's commander-in-chief who has a hard time walking upstairs and riding bikes. So now we have to eliminate any mention of uh, people of color from advertising or sports teams in the name of, what, eliminating racism? Remember Uncle Ben? Gone. Remember the Lando Lakes lady? Gone. Remember Aunt Jemima? Gone. Why? Because, because what? We want to promote black people <laughs> by eliminating black people or Native American people from imagery that is celebrated. People didn't go to the Washington Redskins game and jeer. They went to cheer. They loved the team. I don't know. I, I, I guess if we cheer for Seahawks, that's fine. And uh, is not anti-Seahawk, but maybe some PETA official will come out with some, you know, condemnation of that. But when we celebrate a football team and name a football team, a revered institution in our culture, and we name it for Redskins, for Native Americans, a name for Native Americans. And I know it has some historical roots in, in some bigotry. I understand. But there's a lot of Native Americans that disagree with that. What is the deal with eliminating the name? By the way, back to Aunt Jemima for a moment. Uh, Aunt Jemima was portrayed by a woman named Nancy Green. She was actually a freed slave back in the 1800s who moved to Chicago. And she became the first corporate black model in the United States. Made some money, not a lot of money. Uh, did you know that they traced down her ancestors uh, to this modern day? Because they didn't even know they were ancestors of Nancy Green, the original Aunt Jemima. You know what the ancestors thought? They thought, wow, I'm Aunt Jemima's great-grandson, great-granddaughter. And those great-grandchildren pooled their money together and raised money to replace her headstone with this headstone. Nancy Green, the original Aunt Jemima. They did that in 2020. I mean, it's kind of ironic now that the very ancestors of Aunt Jemima want to honor the name and moniker Aunt Jemima, while the political correct revolutionaries want to eliminate the name Aunt Jemima in the name of racism? Uh, it doesn't make any sense. Back to the Redskins. There is a movement right now. There's pushback, and this needs to happen more often. There's a Native American group that is threatening to boycott if the national, if the Washington football team doesn't change his name back to Redskins. Uh, interesting list and team. Let me go through the history a little bit for you. They were originally called the Boston Braves football team. Now, they had to change their name for one simple reason. There was a Boston Braves baseball team. This was back in the 1920s and 30s. So the owner decided to distinguish themselves and get more fans by changing their name. And then they found out that Boston fans really just weren't into base, base, uh, football in the early 1900s. And so they moved to Washington, and the rest is history. They've won five NFL titles, including Super Bowls. And they are a historic 87-year-old franchise, now a 90-year-old franchise, that was revered for several uh, several decades. Even the logo 
for the Redskins, some of you don't know this, came from a Native American named Walter Black, Black Eye Wetzel, the chairman of the Blackfeet Nation and president of the National Congress of American Indians. He was the guy who replaced the R uh, on the helmet, as you see here, with the Native American uh, profile face on the helmet. Yes, a Native American <laughs> decided that, yeah, let's put Native Americans on the helmet because people are cheering for it. This is good for our history. And I want you to check out and sign this petition that has been put out by uh, a movement called the uh, Native American Guardians Association. They tweeted this out last week. I liked it. I retweeted it and I responded to it. And I got a bunch of likes for it. They have only about 3,000 followers, but 90,000 signatures to their petition to bring back the Redskins. They tweeted out breaking Native American Guardians Association founder and president Eunice Davidson sent a demand letter today to Washington Commander's ownership and key leadership formally requesting the team revitalize its relationship with the American community and rightfully change the name back to the Washington Redskins. I say go sign the petition. It's up to 90,000 signatures. But this is the rewriting and really cultural ignorance, historical ignorance, of, of cultural reframing, cultural revolution that we are kind of experiencing very subtly, but I believe will get very, very prominent going forward, if it not is already prominent. Uh, so, you know, you say this is just a stupid football team, and so stop worrying about these. They, they matter. Shared stories, shared myths, shared uh, tools and abilities, they all point to who we are. They, co they, they draw us together as people, and these kind of things divisively push us apart. Again, evidence that the team's logo came from Native American. Watch this video. In 1971, Walter Blackie Wetzel, the Blackfeet tribal chairman and former president of the National Congress of American Indians, met with the Washington Redskins organization to urge the team to change the R logo on the helmet. With blessings from tribal leaders, Walter Blackie Wetzel brought photos from the Blackfeet Nation located in Northwest Montana, and the image of Chief Two Guns Whitecap was most admired. And the enduring Redskins logo was born, a logo based after a real person out of respect for the Native American community. Chief Two Guns also served as the model for the U.S. Indian head nickel minted in 1913. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Walter Blackie Wetzel's son, Lance Wetzel, and grandson, Ryan Wetzel. Anyway, they used to support them. They used to celebrate them. They used to take pride in their history. And now the Washington Redskins are no more. Now, here's the son of that man who created the logo, uh, Lance Wetzel, talking about how disheartening it is for his father's work to be basically erased in the name of political correctness. Watch. Now, there has been plenty of positive and negative reaction to the name and logo change, but this one hits one Native American tribe differently who designed the logo. The Burgundy and Gold logo had been an Indian chief since 1971. It was designed by Native American Walter Blackie Wetzel. His son, Lance Wetzel, reacts to the team no longer using his family history. It, it's hard. It's, it's disheartening. Um, I think it, it takes away from the Native Americans, um, from my opinion, because that logo represented who we are and its connections to um, the Blackfeet Nation. I think there was a op opportunity for, you know, 
educating people across the nation that didn't know about it, that connection is, 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 is gone now. Yeah, he's right. It was an opportunity to educate people. Hey, mom and dad, why is there a Native American on the helmets of this football team? Well, let me tell you about the Native American history. Let me tell you about how they were warriors. Let me tell you about how they fought, how they were revered. I mean, yes, some people mocked them, but other people revered them. Now, I was a fan of baseball back in the 1990s and early 2000s. I'm no longer a fan of baseball at all, really. Uh, it's too boring. It's too drawn out. But there was a day when the Atlanta Braves were on top of the baseball world. They, are, I think they're back on top of the baseball world now. But back in the 90s with Greg Maddox and... Uh, um, oh, uh, Gla- Tom Glavin and, and uh, all kinds of great pitchers. I remember them, that they used to have the tomahawk chalk. Remember that? Chalk. Remember that? In the, in the middle of the seventh inning, they would just, and they would sing this, oh, like this kind of like Native American song. And I, I remember being a Boston Red Sox fan back in, the, back in those days saying, wow, that is so awesome to hear 100,000 fans all singing in unison, this Native American chant, and kind of intimidating the competition with that, that brush of culture. No one in their right mind thought, gee, they're really culturally appropriating the Native Americans, and they shouldn't do that. How shameful is that? But, but this is what happens when elite intellectuals want to bring about a cultural revolution that ties you more to the state than to the stories that you've told yourself. And it does matter. It matters because, I don't know if you know this, you should, but Christianity is a culture that is based on shared stories. Now, they're not myths. They're true stories. The empty grave is a true story that we cohesively celebrate as Christians. And uh, Moses leading the Israelites to the Red Sea, also a story that we have adopted from the Jewish people. I mean, how? ask yourself this about the Jewish people. How have they survived so long and, 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 and um, outlived so many other dominant, more powerful cultures than they over the last 3,500 years? The answer is simple. Shared stories that tied them together. But if you want complicity amongst the populace to the political revolution, you have to see culture erased. And that's what we're seeing now, subtly and more predominantly every day in America and in the West. I bring you to another version of destroying our distinctions, and that is the distinction between male and female. These are very good and beneficial distinctions. There are things men can do, women cannot do. And there are things women can do that men cannot do. There are things men can do better than women. There are things that women can do better than men. This is how God designed it. And those distinctions help us create culture because we come together. But in the name of progress now, men can dominate women in any sport that they want to simply by identifying as a woman. I bring you to news out of Canada. This is Andre, I'm going to say Anne Andres, a male who identifies as a woman and won first place in a Canadian women's powerlifting championship yesterday. 40 years old, currently now holds multiple records in the female division, including the women's deadlift and bench press, and has placed first in nine out of 11 competitions in which he has participated in over the last four years. According to a source who was present at the championship, Andres set a Canadian women's national record and an unofficial women's power world powerlifting record. This is because he couldn't hack it in male sports, so he jumped ship joined the females and now is dominating the females this was literally a storyline in south park a couple of weeks ago randy macho man savage came out of retirement to dominate women in a triathlon and won first place and to the celebration of the people whose brains are falling out 
But, but this is just kind of hilarious to see our culture and our distinctions get erased. But it's not hilarious because we will ultimately pay the price. By the way, this messaging sends a message to all kinds of men. And now's your chance to dominate in the sporting world. If you cannot win in the men's division, dominate those ladies. And once again, men, because of the sinful condition, the sinful curse that is upon them, are doing exactly what God said would happen the day Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. That your desire will be contrary to your husband, Eve, but he will rule over you. Oh, and more on this story. Here's Ann Andrus uh, talking about how terrible the women's sport is, just in case you thought he was a nice, confused young lady trying to express himself. Watch. Um, why is women's bench so bad? I mean, not compared to me. We all know that I'm a tranny freak, so that doesn't count. And no, we're not talking about Mackenzie Lee. She's got little T-Rex arms and she's like, 400 pounds of chest muscle, apparently. I mean, standard bench in powerlifting competition for women. I literally don't understand why it's so bad. Okay, so no respect for the sport, no respect for his competitors, but he's a hero now of the cultural revolution that we are experiencing. I like to put up this meme. It's a bit on the nose, and I'm not going to read it out loud. I'll just put it up on the screen for you because it just kind of sums up everything nicely. Well, I will read part of it. Men are from Venus. Women are from Venus and men are from Mars. All the other genders you make up are from, uh, you guess the planet if you're listening and not seeing it on the screen. I just had to share that with you because I was laughing out loud myself. But this is the movement. In order to create or in order to erase a culture, you have to erase all the distinctions. You have to erase the stories. You have to erase the traditions. So that what? So that we become some kind of, I don't know, zero, ground zero utopian universe where everybody is basically the same. This is the equity argument. It's not no longer about equal opportunity. It's about equal outcomes, regardless of opportunity, regardless of talent, regardless of skill. This is the destruction of the meritocracy through the affirmative action uh, laws and uh, the erasure of all the things that make us distinct. If we have no distinctions, there will be nothing to pay attention to anymore. I think that's something else people have to understand. Anyway, is America going the way of the Khmer Rouge? The Khmer Rouge, before they lined up citizens and shot them in mass killing fields, decided that all culture and traditions within a society must be completely destroyed or discarded for being oppressive. And that a new revolutionary culture must replace it, starting from scratch to base a utopia based on equity. This is called Year Zero. It was an idea put into practice by the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia that all culture and traditions within a society must be completely destroyed or discarded for being oppressive. And that a new revolutionary culture must replace it, starting from scratch to create a utopia based on equity. This is nothing new. Uh, it was Mao's China who employed young people to become his red guards. And they were encouraged to publicly mock, shame, vilify, and imprison anyone who held on to the four olds. The olds are customs, culture, habits, and ideas. All that old stuff has got to be eliminated because of the new progressive revolution that's going to be equal for all. Who else did it? Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler, and this is from History.com, Hitler knew that the main impediment to his plan was family. Private cohesive groups that were not under political sway were an obstacle to his goals. In 1935, 60% of young boys were part of Hitler's youth. 
even as many of their parents disavowed the uh, organization and the movement. In 1939, that number jumped up to 82% of boys aged 10 to 18, and then a law was passed making membership in the group mandatory for all teenage boys. See, that's what happens as the political revolutionaries start to take power. First, it's popular and fun and hip and cool. And if you don't get on board with it, you're tied to an ancient old story in 1937 and obviously old. <laughs> and it becomes weird, weird. Yeah. And then you eventually get a predominance of people, a plurality of people who are adhering to this policy. And then before you know, it becomes law. That brings me to illegal immigration because it is out of control in this country. No matter what your stance on the issue is, even the Democrats are starting to hedge on their vision of this kind of utopian future as they call for federal funding and more action from the Biden regime to get this problem under control. Even, hilariously, northern states, which are getting a fraction of the illegal immigrants and migrants into their states, are literally ready to lose their mind. So let's put it in perspective. 1.2 illegal immigrant migrants <clears throat> uh, have entered into the state of Texas in the year 2022, and even more since, in 2023. 500,000 in Arizona, about half that number so far in 2023. The numbers are overwhelming. Well, Massachusetts gets 5,500 migrants, and the state governor decides it's a state of emergency. It's a state of emergency because we got a trickle, just a little fraction of the problem that Texas and Arizona gets. <clears throat> that means leave the problem to Texas because I'm not a border state. In other words, I don't want to deal with this. Now, the governor of Massachusetts was just elected last November. Her name is Maura Healy. She's an out and proud lesbian. And here she was on the campaign trail on the left talking about how calling yourself a sanctuary city is a great idea. And then you're going to see the video on the right play where she calls for a state of emergency after 5,600 illegal migrants come to her state. Watch. I think it's really important that cities and towns have the ability, have the exercise and prerogative to label themselves whatever. As of today, close to 5,600 families with children are living in state-funded shelters, hotels, dorms, and other emergency facilities across Massachusetts. That figure is 80% higher than it was just one year ago, and it's unsustainable. For this reason, today I am declaring a state of emergency in Massachusetts. <laughs> it's kind of hilarious to see how quickly they feel it's an emergency when they just get a very small fraction of the problem that our southern states have been dealing with. But you get the virtue signal when you're that far from the border. Another example is Eric Adams of New York City telling his constituents, recently, immigrants have always taken that leap of faith that brings them to New York Harbor. The asylum seekers who have arrived in our city are writing a new chapter in this timeless story. We welcome them. We need federal funding, government, we need federal government support to get them the help they need. And now... The New York City mayor has a message for all New Yorkers. Stop asking about what he's going to do and start asking what you're going to do, which is take them into your home. Where people need to stop asking, Eric, what are you doing? 
This is a moment we need to ask, what are we doing? This is not Mayor Adams' job. This is the job of the people of the city of New York. So now in New York City and in Massachusetts, the leaders of those communities, in the name of progress, in the name of social utopia, uh, benefiting all people, want you, yes, you, to take migrants into your home and they'll pay you $100 a night to take strangers from a different country who could possibly be, I don't know, smuggling drugs or murdering people or sexually assaulting your daughter right into your home. Mm -hmm. These are democratic policies hard at work for the average American person. And I don't know where New York City is going to get all the money they need to get this problem under control because it is a serious problem. And I want to show you from the testimony of New York City's own a hotel worker who is seeing this firsthand, the migrant crisis exploding in New York City, where they're basically putting them up on these posh hotels and taking care of every single one of their needs. Here's what this one hotel worker has to say about the problem. It is horrifying. Watch. We have close to 5,000 migrants. Anything involving this hotel, I was helping run it. Everything ranging from doctor's visits to medication is paid for for the migrants. Anything you can possibly think of, it's being given to them. Car seats, cribs for newborns. Uh, there's, I want to say, at least two to three babies a week being born at this hotel. The migrants being in those hotels have destroyed them. There's a lot of alcohol in these rooms. Housekeeping is there all week. And they'll clean it, and by the end of the night, it's, it's, there's kids getting drunk together. There's people hooking up with each other. There's multiple guns in these rooms as well. The alarming. Now, what you're getting here, too, is just a big picture of what happens when you are um, completely cared for by the government. You get a mess. You don't take pride in your your habitat. You don't take pride in your home. You just you just disregard anything because you've got too much time on your hands, no responsibility, and you don't care about your community. Why should they care? They've been bused there from Texas and they've been given all this free stuff and they have all this free time and heck, we'll live it up and let the, let the maids take care of the mess. This is what's happening right now in New York City and the story gets worse. Watch. The thing is that this hotel is meant to be a family hotel. You were actually showing me some text messages between a social worker about a drunk 10-year-old in this hotel. Can you talk to us about what happened there? Yeah, it was a drunk 10-year-old who was caught with a 14 and a 12-year-old, <laughs> and all three of them were intoxicated. And when we looked them up in the system, the parents had checked out two days ago. So their parents just left them there? Yeah, the parents will leave the kids unattended in the hotel. We heard a security guard start yelling, uh, there's a gun on site, there's a gun on site. It was probably an upset person that we had kicked out of the hotel. I myself had been assaulted. I've seen other people get assaulted. I've had threats saying, you know, we'll be waiting for you guys outside. There's been times where staff has had to be, you know, escorted to their cars, to their to their trains. Because the migrants are threatening them. Yeah. Often at times there was migrants causing chaos with, with shoplifting. The one instant where I showed you that video, uh, 
aside from being caught shoplifting, they started getting physical. And a lot of the times it was, you know, go calm the migrant down, get them inside the hotel. I've been doing this for five years. And in my five years, this has been the worst experience by far. The city of New York does not know what they're doing. Uh, yeah, they don't know what they're doing, and it's going to get worse and worse, and it is a picture of the cultural revolution that they want to happen. Bring chaos to the culture and erase history and stories and shared values because that ties you to the governmental leader who will fix it for you. And it absolutely is a Christian issue because we Christians care for the weaker members of society. The weaker members of society are children and women. And those are the people who are paying an enormous price in this crisis. I want to bring you to this video. This is out of the UK, so take it for what it's worth there. But a YouTuber took to a parade in UK calling for the welcoming of refugees into England. And he asked the marchers of the parade, would you be willing to adopt one of these refugees into your home since you're out here protesting that they should come? And you can predict the answers. It's hilarious. Watch. I just noticed your placard saying refugees welcome here. Yes, I'm just sir. wondering if you'd like to go down on a list saying you're willing to take the refugees into your home. Of course not. Uh, the only problem is I rent. You rent? Yeah. Maybe an issue? Yeah, because they've got, well, they've put nine bedrooms in a four-bedroom house. So <laughs> we're pretty much... So since you actually uh, adopt a refugee and take them into your home? Well, if I had any space, I if would. If you had but any yeah, space. Yeah, it would, wouldn't be right. a nice place just, to bring them because yeah. it's a bit overcrowded. Right. Yes, if I had this place, definitely. Thank you very much yeah. for that, love. Pop one into your home. Yeah, I live in a rental place, so I, I can't. Rental? Yeah, yeah. You can't do it. Yeah, yeah. Someone else's job. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm sorry, I can't. You can't, can't take I one. Can't. I don't have. I don't have. I don't, don't have. I don't have. A space. Don't have the space. You have a refugee stay at your house. Yeah, I don't mind. You go on the list. I don't mind. Yeah, I can't take. Give me the thing. Oh wait, I can't because my house is only a little small. And Amazing. Now, would you be willing to have a refugee in your home? Uh, yes, if I had room. If you had room, it's funny that. To adopt a refugee? No, thank you. No, thank you. Any reason in no. particular? I don't. What sort of refugee are you talking about? <laughs> Excuse me. Would you be willing to adopt a refugee into your home? Uh, no. No. So, sorry, I can't. Would you adopt a refugee into your home? Yeah, it goes on and on like that. Uh, yeah, they aren't going to do it because suddenly they don't have space. I've never seen uh, a parade filled with people so impoverished in living spaces in the same place. That's unbelievable. I, evidently, England does not have uh, more than one bedroom apartments anywhere because <laughs> a lot of those people look single. Another problem, though, that we are uh, going to report to you tonight is uh, the problem of assault, sexual assault coming from these migrants and <clears throat> the hypocrisy of the New York City mayor asking you to take these people into your home when they have been put into hotels and they have committed some of the most heinous crimes. The New York Post reporting Erie County refuses New York City migrants after two sex assaults in Buffalo area hotels. And this is a top state Democratic official and a previous supporter of housing migrants says he will refuse additional resettlements after a second local, a second local alleged sexual assault involving, involving an asylum seeker. He says, I demanded Mayor Adams pause all further transportation of asylum seekers to our community until such a time as we can resolve all security issues. So this is the problem. And this is why Christians need to care about this. Uh, the powers that be don't give a rip about culture and what America was. They want to redefine America into some kind of government-dependent so social socialist utopia. We need to push back at this. 
because what is happening is a revolution under the belly of America right now that is going to erase the culture and history, the distinctions and identifications that make us who we are. And this is how totalitarian states take the control. So what you're seeing, of course, is hypocrisy at its finest. But what I'm also seeing right now is that there is a pushback. Pushback is happening. Uh, that brings me to this guy. His name is Oliver Anthony. And eight days ago, you have never heard of him. I never heard of him. But then he released a song that is sweeping the billboard charts. Anthony is a former factory worker from Virginia, and his song, Rich Men, North of Richmond, is trouncing the biggest names in the music industry, along with a, other, a few other songs of his. In fact, here's the top 20 playlist. I think this is from Spotify. Uh, over the last week, and Oliver Anthony Music has not one, not two, not three, not four, but eight songs in the top 20 in plays on the music charts. Eight songs. Again, up until Friday, you never heard of him. And even up until Friday, he had never even used a real camera, anything more than his iPhone, to record something to make his music. But his music is striking a chord with a lot of people. Why? Well, the song is a heartfelt cry against the corruption in Washington, D.C., Rich men, north of Richmond, Virginia. He's talking about how the dollar has lost its value, and then you work all day, and you get drunk all night, and then politicians don't seem to care, and the welfare system is hijacked by takers and looters, and the press has jumped all over it because it does not fit the narrative with the left-wing mob. Mm -mm. So Rolling Stone put out a piece, and it says this, a right-wing uh, right influencers just found their favorite new country song. And the article says, look at the lyrics. They may suggest another reason why rich men of North Richmond is appealing to right-wing influencers. Anthony rails against high taxes and the value of the dollar, but also weighs into some Reagan-era talking points about welfare. Lord, we got folks in the street, ain't got nothing to eat, and the obese milk and welfare he sings, well, God, if you're five foot three and 300 pounds, taxes ought not to pay for your bag of fudge rounds. The real head-turner, though, is an apparent allusion to Jeffrey Epstein's Caribbean island where billionaire and convicted sex offender, where the billionaire and convicted sex offender allegedly introduced underage girls to powerful associates. The song lyrics say, I wish politicians would look out for minors and not just minors, M-I-N-O-R-S, on an island somewhere. So here you go, the left-wing media outlets, Rolling Stone. Um, the song is complaining about things that you should be complaining about. Powerful people taking advantage of the weaker people, such as Jeffrey Epstein and his powerful political cohorts, raping young girls on his Caribbean island. But you call out the song, you demonize the song that calls out the pedophile. That's where we're at, Rolling Stone. That's where you get to. You know, there was a day, I remember it, when Rolling Stone used to be against the man. Now they are backing the man. This article from Reason also has me cracking up. Uh, fun, silly, anti-tax ballad. Rich men of North Richmond goes viral for some online reasons. So there's a pro-tax position? I didn't even know that. I thought everybody hated taxes. But I guess the free minds and free market people over at Reason think that if you sing about high taxes, you are a problem to the society. <laughs> Unbelievable. I used to have great respect for Reason magazine. I have no respect anymore. They have just turned into an establishment shill like many other media outlets. But there is another positive cultural, uh, uh, another positive response, sorry, uh, to this cultural craziness. And guess what? It's that age old power to change the world, Christianity. 
We hear a lot of bad news about Christianity. Oh, it's on the decline. Churches are empty. They're not coming back to pre-COVID levels. Uh, Christianity will be a minority religion in America by 2050, blah, 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 blah. What these people always do is they underestimate the power of the gospel, the power of the Holy Spirit, and the fact that Jesus, not America, is actually in charge of what happens with his church. And it turns out, and this is breaking news, everybody, here on the deep, and you heard it here first, breaking news, ready? It turns out people are still people. Uh, So people who needed Jesus when Jesus walked the earth are very, very, very similar to people who need Jesus today. Who would have thought that people were actually people? Good news. Really, really good news. Let me get to it right now. Really, really, really good. That's really good news. It's good. The really good news is that the American Bible Society just put this study out that shows that Gen Z is looking for Jesus. The study finds 45% of young adults are intrigued by the message of Scripture and Jesus. Now, Gen Z are those born after or born in 1997 or after. And what these stats all show, you see the chart here on the screen, there's two graphs. The maroon color is Gen Z, 18 to 21-year-olds, and the blue color, dark blue color, there is Gen Z, 22 to 26-year-olds. Now, so there's the older Gen Z and the younger Gen Z, and what, what the chart shows, look at it real quickly. Very or extremely curious about the Bible and or Jesus, 56% of the younger Gen Zs, that's 18 to 21-year-olds, are very interested about in Jesus. The older Gen Zs, not so much, 34%. The younger Gen Zs use their Bible more. The younger Gen Zs increased their Bible use over the last year. So Christian Post reports this, half of Gen Zers say their life was transformed by the Bible's message. Half of a generation feels transformed by the Bible's message. This report saying, uh, this article saying, let me put it up on the screen here, a new report reveals that while younger generations of America are less religious and engaged with the Bible than older counterparts, parts, roughly half of them credit the Bible's message for transforming their lives. This is again from the American Bible Society State of the Bible Report 2023. ABS, American Bible Society, drew its data from the survey responses of 2761 adult, U.S. adults in January, with a margin of error of 2.5 percentage points. The newest installment of the annual survey examined the beliefs and practices of Gen Zers, comparing and contrasting them to older generations. The report shows that although a higher share of respondents belonging to Gen Z identify as agnostics, atheists, or nuns than older generations, uh, 58% of Gen Z respondents identify as Christians. Despite the lack of scripture engagement among American youth, about half of them, Gen Zers, agreed with the statement that the message of the Bible has transformed my life. Uh, Additionally, Gen Z has the lowest frequency of Bible use among the five generations examined. Uh, 30% of Gen Z respondents meet the definition of a Bible user, which refers to those who interact with the Bible on on their own outside of a church or service at least three times a year. Let me tell you why that's not an important statistic real quickly. I'm a pastor, and I knew I was going to be a pastor at age 13. And I can tell you this point of fact. I read the Bible way more now than when I was in my 20s. And I wanted to be a pastor. So don't worry about that. Don't worry about that little uh, statement there. All young people are busy. They're busy dating and having fun and going to school and they're overwhelmed with life and all that stuff. When you get older and more settled, the Bible comes back into you. And I was a pastor. Okay, I'm just letting you know. But it is good news all around here. Well, for the most part, from this 
article, the share of Bible users, back to the article, the share of Bible users rises with each generation from youngest to oldest with 33% of millennials, 39% of Gen Xers, that's me, 46% of baby boomers, and 48% of elders fitting the description. When analyzing Gen Z levels of scripture engagement over time, the study showed that 60% of the youngest generation fall into the Bible disengaged category in the scripture engagement scale, which determines an individual's placement based on the responses to questions about the frequency of the Bible use and impact and centrality of his messages. However, the younger group of Gen Z has higher levels of Bible use than the older group, while nearly twice as many younger members of Gen Z reported seeing their Bible use increase over the last year than the older ones. Younger Gen Z members were less likely to be Bible disengaged than older Gen Z respondents. This is good news, and we should celebrate it, because Jesus is not done with America. He's not done with people. <laughs> uh, it turns out he's still in charge. He's still building his church, and it's still true that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church that Jesus is building. Uh, ran across this video of Gen Zers unashamedly praying to Jesus in a public gathering spot, and it should give you chills. Watch. Fill us with your spirit, God. I just ask that for you. You also rise us up as men of God. Now, hopefully, we encourage this, Christians, regardless of our little denominational nuances. Like, you probably heard the kid speaking in tongues while he was praying. You should celebrate that instead of getting all worked up as to whether there was an interpretation or should he keep that tongue to himself. I mean, I love the fire of young believers, and I, I caution and highly warn the older believers with their denominational debates, don't use your denominationalism to, to quench the Holy Spirit's work in a young believer's life. Please, for the love of Jesus, don't do that. What's driving this pushback? From a biblical angle, I have one more thing to share with you. I think we are a bit in the judges cycle thing, even the first and second king cycle thing. And that, that cycle goes like this, and I'm going to put this up on the screen to show you. The judges cycle is that God's people would fall into idolatry, then they would land in oppression to their enemies. In their oppression, they would cry out to God, seek deliverance, and he would provide a judge to be their deliverer. And the judge would set them free from their oppression and bring the country back to prominence. And the blessings of God would fall upon the nation. Because when a nation turns to God, good things happen. Well, America has turned away from God for the last 50 to 60 years, and we've been handed over to our own idolatries, and we've been falling into oppression. People can't pay their bills. Uh, inflation is through the roof. Uh, we can't even get our foreign affairs in order. There's corruption, heavy, heavy corruption in the White House and a complicit media that refuses to cover it in honesty. And so we're seeing it. And then the breakout of all the craziness, all the cultish kind of ideologies such as transgenderism and men can give birth and the destruction of the family and fathers aren't important and uh, all that matters is you and the individual is king and that hand is, has handed our society over to an oppression that we have not seen before to this scale. Well, guess what happens? People are starting to cry out. Young people are starting to wake up to the reality that they need to be tied to something that lasted longer than themselves. And nothing has lasted longer than the movement of Jesus on this earth. In my opinion, America is right there, right between oppression and crying out. And I am praying for more crying out because if we cry out, God will move and great things will happen. More really good news. You know, ABC News 
is not known for reporting positive things about Christianity or Christian practice. But I would like to give you such an example of them doing so. From ABC News, a nurse was freed from her kidnappers in Haiti. And while she was kidnapped, her rallying cry was a worship song called Sea of Victory. Uh, this is a nurse from America named Alex Dorsianville. Sorry about butchering her last name. But she and her child were freed Wednesday after nearly two weeks of being kidnapped after they were snatched at gunpoint from the campus of a Christian-run school near Port-au-Prince. She says in the article, I am completely humbled by the outpouring of support and prayer for myself and my sweet baby, both during and following our time in captivity. She's from New Hampshire. God was so very present and the fire with us, and I pray that when I find the words to tell our story, that the mighty name of Jesus may be glorified and many people will come to know his love. End quote. In her most difficult moments, she's, uh, she says she turned to Sea of Victory by North Carolina-based Elevation Worship Music Collective. There's a part of the verse or part of that song that says, you take what the enemy meant for evil and turned it and turn it for good. Amen. Surprising to see ABC report something positive about Christianity, but miracles do happen, do, still do happen. Guys, that's the show. And like I said, it is the last episode of season uh, six on the deep end. So support the deep ends coming back, will you? You can buy some cool shirts at timhatchlive.com. You could buy my first book, Move, which is already out. Go to amazon.com if you don't want to go to timhatchlive.com and search Tim Hatch Move. Buy the book. If you've bought the book, leave a review. You can also just hand us money, hand us support so that we can advertise and get this content further than we've ever gotten it before. And more bad news, unfortunately, to share, and that is the conclusion of our deep dive Bible study, The Kings of Compromise, tomorrow night. Bad news because I have thoroughly enjoyed our study through First and Second Kings, and I know you have too. So tune in for the grand conclusion of that study tomorrow at 7.30, youtube.com slash Tim Hatch Live. If you haven't already, hit that like button, hit the subscribe button, and hit that notification bell so that you can get notified when we're back live with the deep end returning for season seven on the day after Labor Day. I can't wait. I know you can't either. I'm going to get to work to make sure it's fantastic for you. God bless you. Have a great night in Jesus name.